You're listening to Labor Wave Revolution Radio. who have a full range of desires and emotions, how do we handle that well? What are the skills we actually need to shore up in order to be in community with each other? I don't want to be numb. Numb actually keeps me in danger, right? Because when I'm numb, I can't tell that there's something at my back. I can't feel that I have people at my sides, both who have my sides and who need me to have theirs, right? I can't feel what's happening around me. So a huge invitation of the work of pleasure activism is, can you remember what it's like from the inside out to feel? April 19th, 2019, Adrian Mary Brown gave one keynote address at the opening space for the Radical Imagination 2 conference. Adrian Mary Brown is author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and the co-editor of Octavia's Brood, a science fiction from social justice movements. She is a writer, social justice facilitator, pleasure activist, healer, and doula living in Detroit. Her keynote address discussed her most recent work published by AK Press called Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Opening space for the Radical Imagination 2 was a two-day conference organized by groups such as the Coalition of Graduate Employees, a labor union representing graduate workers at Oregon State University, as well as a host of co-sponsoring organizations like AK Press, PM Press, the Institute for Anarchist Studies, Haymarket Books, the Spring Creek Project, the AYA Initiative, and others. You can find out more about the conference and any of its future activities by checking out the website OregonImagines.com. You can also find more information and more of the work of Adrian Mary Brown by visiting her website at adrianmarybrown.net. On Labor Wave, we play the music of John Dwyer from bands such as Damage Bug and the OCs as Mr. John Dwyer has given us express permission to use his music without copyright so long as we don't, quote, break to the scary right. We hope you enjoy this audio reproduction of Adrian Mary Brown's keynote address, and we hope that you continue listening to us on LaborWave and liking us on soundcloud.com backslash LaborWave, sending us an email at laborwavenews at gmail.com, and giving us feedback on our Facebook page. There's three books that people are like familiar with that I've done. One is Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements, which has a root system in this region. Um, Walida Imarisha is the co-editor of that work, and that is all about visionary fiction and radical imagination. So I was really excited to see that this gathering was really in the balm of or the bowl of radical imagination. Because I think radical imagination and pleasure are two of the spoils of decolonization or colonization, right? Like part of our decolonizing process is, oh, how do I reclaim the right to imagine what the future will look like? 
um, rather than the future just keeps happening to me as other people imagine what they're going to get from it, right? And the same thing with pleasure. I really believe that pleasure is one of those spoils, one of those things that we're like, oh, you think that because you colonize this place and have a penis that your pleasure is utmost importance. But then if I <laughs> didn't colonize anything, I should just be three-fifths of a person like serving you in some way, right? And we don't even realize, it's like, oh, that's that was like 100 years ago. We're fine now, right? It's like, no, actually, it's been really deeply embodied in us, um, and it's been what we've been practicing. Like, we've been practicing service. We've been practicing self-negation. We've been practicing depression, coping, <laughs> right, trying to survive. And a lot of times it's like, we're just like, oh, our struggles are oriented around survival. So we're like, how do I just, like, survive this horrific onslaught of harm? And... So part of the concept of pleasure activism, key concept of it, is it's not enough to just be surviving in constant oppression. We need to be experiencing pleasure as a measure of our liberation, as a measure of how free are we? Am I free enough to wake up and have an orgasm on a Tuesday, right? That's a freedom. What day is today? Um, we're going to be assessing our orgasmic histories here. Just be ready. Um, so, and then in the middle sits emergent strategy. So between that visionary fiction space and this pleasure space is this emergent strategy space. And so for me, I kind of had to go through them. I was like, first, what would it look like if <clears throat> I was imagining the future and people who looked like me and people who struggled in the way I struggle, what if we were the ones who were imagining the future? And so Octavius Group brings those visions forward, right? explicitly people who are trying to change the world because I think we are the experts on what's possible and not possible um, you know there's a lot of people who will theorize but when you're actually like oh I've got my hands in the dirt here trying to figure out how to get a bunch of people clean water right then all of a sudden it becomes very oh we actually don't understand how to get clean water most human beings are just like if it doesn't come out of my faucet clean I'm at a loss I'll just go buy something in a bottle which may or may not be clean. Very few people like take the time to be like, where is this bottle from anyway? I was just in Thailand, which basically for like a full week after you return from a country outside of the U.S., you can just be like, I was just in like Thailand. Um, right? I recommend going out of the country just so you can do that. Um, it's like really fun. My, some of my friends have been like, were you just in Thailand? Because you, you're starting all your sentences that way. Um, <laughs> but I was just in Thailand, and it was interesting because we're talking about, <laughs> I just did it again. I just added it again. Just keep it. I was just there. It was great. Uh, it's actually really beautiful there. <laughs> Surprise. Um, and a little warmer than here. Wow, this is... Look at how... I just want to say, I feel free. Like, I could walk all the way around the room right now and still be recording. Um, so, I was just in Thailand. Um, that whole tangent was just to get it in a third time. And um, But one of the things I noticed was water, the relationship to water there is there's tons of bottled water, and my friend who's living there was like, you have to look at the bottle um, here. It's really key, because if you don't look at the bottle, um, some of the bottles are selling exactly what's coming out of the faucet, and it's called the piped, it, you know, says something about the piped water, and some of them are actually selling something else. We still don't really know what the processing of that other stuff is, and I'm like, oh, that feels very similar to the U.S., where, like, I, you know, I'm in this argument with my dad all the time because he's like, bottled water or die. You know, and like, they'll lay in some I'm like, this place is famous for the wells of fresh water that just came down from a glacier directly to our mouths. Can we drink that? No, about that. I'd rather have something from a plastic bottle, right? And I'm like, Dan. Um, I can't remember now why I went on this tangent. Water. It's like, all right, well, anyway, so we're just going to come right back to pleasure. Pleasure has a lot of water involved in it, too. There's a whole section on squirting in this book. Um, so, tied it all together. Um, um, I want to talk about the radical black lineage inside of this, and that lineage flows through 
Octavia's Brood to Emergent Strategy into Pleasure Activism, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, Octavia Butler is one of the key through lines. So we checked in earlier with um, folks who've come to the workshop, but now I want to check in with all of you. How many people here have read Octavia Butler's work? How many people are about to read Octavia's work? So I do feel like one of my personal missions in life is to just make people read her work um, and to make people read all the people I'm going to mention. I'm like, you should be reading these people. A lot of times when white folks ask me, like, you know, how can I be helpful? How can I be of service? I'm like, go read these people because if you read them, your worldview will get shifted in such a way that the question becomes... um, I have a sense of what to do now, where do I go? Or, like, it just sharpens the thing. I'm like, oh, right, accomplishing. How do I do that, right? So Octavia is one of these people who wrote specifically about black history, about black people and black futures, but in a way that was accessible to all of humanity. And she wrote as, I I loved um, Leah's talk because I feel like she always presences most of the people that we look, that I look back at, most of the people that we look back and we're like, that person was a badass, it was also a person with a disability. And often that part gets, like, tucked away in the history, right? Like, oh, Harry Tubman, epileptic. Interesting. What did that open for her ability to vision, right? Octavia Butler, someone else who was dyslexic, right? Words shifted, turned, letters moved around. And she was, the four, she was born after her mother had four miscarriages, all of male children. And... So I love looking at Octavia because you see she's this, like, tall, wide, solid body force with this, like, underbite, sort of this, like, awkward look to her. And I remember I got to meet her when I was in college, and and I didn't know then that she was, like, the god prophet of my life. (laughs) Um, Thank God, because I think I would have been so weird. But (laughs) I was already completely awkward. I was like... She's like, no. Um, but one thing that's really interesting to me about how she envisioned things was she was like, it's not enough to just write us into the future. We also have to really contend with the problems of our time that, like, everyone on our planet is going to have to figure certain things out. And inside of that, our leadership is crucial. And I love that because I'm like, we've been written into the future before Octavia was writing. There were black people there. But they were there usually as sidekicks, right? I will help you traverse outer space, but I will not actually be the heroine, the leader, right? So Octavia gives us these visions. Octavia's brood was a bunch of us saying, let's put ourselves in relation with that. Then I noticed that it wasn't just the blackness of these leaders and the way they were leading, but there was something about their relationship with the natural world and kind of taking directives from how are slug colonies organizing themselves? How are ants redistributing resources? Ants are so cool. <laughs> ants are like somehow doing high-level pheromonal math with their little intelligent antenna enough to organize their home structures so that there's an epicenter of their structure and an equidistant in either direction exactly opposite is their graveyard and their trash. We don't even do that. I was like, that would be awesome. Anyway, so I was like, oh, Octavia is studying these things and then fictionalizing what human structures could look like that were embodying those things. But then, you know, got that, did emergent strategy, cool. And then I kept reading her work, and I was like, there's also something intense about pleasure in all of her work. Most of her community solutions are these symbiotic, sexualized communities where people are like, we come together We survive apocalypse by making love with each other, by cooking for each other, by taking care of each other. There's almost always the presence of intimacy in any other formation of community. And I was like, huh, maybe that's not accidental. Maybe it's not just Octavia having dream after dream of communal orgasmic whatever. Maybe it's actually strategy, right? That like part of what helps us survive is that we want each other and that we want to be together. So then, you know, trying to put that in relationship with this Me Too movement, Me Too moment, right? And being like, well, how do we create communities that can want each other and long for each other and need each other in ways that are healthy and not harmful and not toxic and not recreating patriarchy all the time? 
I really am in, like, right now, my, my mission in life is, like, we can't leave anyone in patriarchy. Like, like patriarchy is this little box. And initially, I will say, sorry, guys, but I was just like, just leave the guys. Right? Queer, trans, women, we're getting out of here. Right? <laughs> I was like, men, it's yours. But then I was like, mm, it doesn't work. Right? This is the problem with our small, tiny Earth planet spaceship that's hurtling through space. Is It's so small, actually. Like, we're really a tiny little place. And if any of us are holding really wrong-headed ideas and trying to act from that place, it really negatively impacts everyone else's chance of survival. So we have to liberate everyone from patriarchy. And I think that Octavia's structures for community was one of the ways that she was practicing that, right? That, like, how does patriarchy stand up and assert itself inside of a community where there's women in charge of everything, <laughs> right? I'm like, I love it. This works. But in each of her stories, the sexual dynamic between lead characters was as important as any other part of the dynamic. And I started noticing that we try to desexualize our movements. And I got really curious about, like, oh, how long have we been trying to desexualize the world as a solution to sexual harm, right? We're like, if you just... You know, and I'll, I'll say, you're like, you're like, I didn't try that at all. No. Wait. <laughs> um, I'll say one example I, I talk about in the book is um, going with a lover of mine who was from out of the country, who'd grown up elsewhere, into a bathhouse in California, uh, or hot springs, if, if any of you have ever been there. It's heaven on earth. Some mineral springs and stuff. So, but we go in that place, and there's a big sign that was like, don't even look at each other like that, right? And, right? Which I totally understand. I'm like, I'm a survival of sexual assault and all kinds of fucked up sexual energies coming at me. So I'm like, hey, <laughs> yeah, don't look at me. But then my boo at the time was like, this is ridiculous. Only in America would you put up a sign that says, get naked, sweat, don't look at each other. And I was just like... Oh, uh, yeah, I guess that doesn't, like, really work. Because part of what's happening, I don't know if any of you have ever been, like, naked in a bathhouse, but you're just like, humans are amazing. Like, you're just looking at everyone's body like, oh, I never saw this booty like that. That's so cute. Like, you just, you can't help it. You just are seeing each other's bodies. And so part of a huge chunk of now what happens in this book is saying, how do we do the opposite? How do we acknowledge and accept and understand that we are these wild creatures who have a full range of desires and emotions how do we handle that well? What are the skills we actually need to shore up in order to be in community with each other where we can say to each other, like, you look really good to me. Like, I would like to bang you or whatever. However you say that, everyone has a different way. <laughs> Some people are like, so. <laughs> this is like, this is now the standard for like a, a dick pic, okay? So this is, people, some people do it that way. They're just like, can I offer you my penis? Um, and, you know, right now, the skill set is sort of like, no, I'm literally canceling your existence because that was so, what are you thinking, right? But I would love some world in which, A, this, that was not the initial opening foray of seduction, but also where we could say, where someone could be like, I really want to have sex with you, or I'm really attracted to you, or whatever, and you could be like, I'm not interested in you that way. And then y'all could still be cool and figure out, oh, how do we take, how do we harness whatever that energy of initial attraction that you felt is with my feeling of just, I want to be some friends, and then move and, like, keep organizing and building community together? Um, how do we use our voices in moments that are intense, pressured moments? So um, there's a piece in here about, like, what happens if you get triggered while you're in an experience with someone, right? Often that's a breaker. So if any of you have ever had this happen where you're like, I already have sexual harm, now I'm in a situation with someone who I'd like to, like, have this great experience with, but something just happened, like, they maybe they touched me a certain way, or something just happened that threw me back. And it's not this person, but I'm still back there. And so it's like, oh, how in that moment do I use my voice to say, I'm triggered, but I really want you. I really want this. Can we slow it down? Can we morph what we're doing? Can we shift and change? I want us to have those skill sets. I want us to have boundary skill sets. I'm a boundary queen now. <laughs> Recovering boundary bad girl. Um, I didn't grow up with great boundaries. How many of y'all did? How many of you are like, I learned boundaries. My boundaries are on point from day one. <laughs> All right. I think most of us don't get tired. We're like, kiss grandma or whatever. You know, it's like, okay, my body belongs to everybody, whatever. Um, and now you see the opposite is happening where kids are being raised and like, consent is your choice. And like all these sad grandparents out there are like, 
no means no. It means no. Look how good she is sleeping out of me. Right? So sad. But it's so important, right? It's like how, as adults who have already been harmed, who have already had our boundaries transgressed for most of our lives, how do we reclaim the sacred power of being able to say no? Not interested. No is a complete sentence. You know? Um, so, again, I'm really interested in those. And to me, if we're going to have pleasure that everyone can have access to, those are like the skills involved. But I'm not the first person to have these thoughts by any means. Tons of people have had them. So Octavia is one of the rivers. Audre Lorde is the other, like, crucial text of this book. And I'm actually, I'm very excited because I got permission to reprint her essay, The Uses of the Erotic as Power, in the front of this book. And I just want to read to you because when you get a chance to read Audrey in public, you do that. <laughs> okay. um, a little bit of this essay. It's like eight pages long. And I was really moved to discover that it was published in August of 1978. I was born in September of 1978. And so I love the idea that, like, this con- these concepts were right, like, born around the same time as me, the way that she articulated them. I'm like, <laughs> we're the same age. Um, <laughs> me and this concept, this ideology. So I want to read this, and I'm going to. Here I go. During World War II, we bought sealed plastic pallet packets of white, uncolored margarine with a tiny, intense pellet of yellow coloring perched like a topaz, just inside the clear skin of the bag. Okay, margarine bag. Why am I like... <laughs> I'm not <laughs> Like, that's a good writer. Audrey Lord. Okay. We would leave the margarine out for a while to soften, and then we would pinch the little pellet to break it inside the bag, releasing the rich yellowness into the soft, pale mass of margarine. Yes. I mean... Yes. Then taking it carefully between our fingers, we would knead it gently back and forth over and over again until the color had spread through the whole pound bag of margarine, thoroughly coloring it. I find the erotic such a kernel within myself. When released from its intense and constrained pellet, (laughs) it flows through my life and colors my life with a kind of energy that heightens and sensitizes and strengthens all of my experience. We have been raised to fear the yes within ourselves, our deepest cravings. But once recognized, those which do not enhance our future lose their power and can be altered. The fear of our desires keeps them suspect and indiscriminately powerful, for to suppress any truth is to give it strength beyond endurance. The fear that we cannot grow beyond whatever distortions we may find within ourselves keeps us docile, loyal, and obedient, externally defined, and leads us to accept many facets of our oppression as women. When we live outside ourselves, and by that I mean on external directives only, rather than from our internal knowledge and needs, when we live away from those erotic guides from within ourselves, then our lives are limited by external and alien forms, and we conform to the needs of a structure that is not based on human need, let alone in individuals. But when we begin to live from within, outward, in touch with the power of the erotic within ourselves and allowing that power to inform and illuminate our actions upon the world around us, then we begin to be responsible to ourselves in the deepest sense For as we begin to recognize our deepest feelings, we begin to give up of necessity being satisfied with suffering and self-negation and with the numbness which so often seems like their only alternative in this society. Our acts against oppression become integral with self, motivated and empowered from within. In touch with the erotic, I become less willing to accept powerlessness or those other supplied states of being which are not native to me, such as resignation, despair, self-effacement, depression, self-denial. Girl, you're so smart, girl. So she makes this beautiful case, and I remember like reading this for the first time and being like, oh my God, like, it's not normal to be suffering? You know, it's human to suffer. 
right? But I was like, oh, it's not normal. Like, it's not like my purpose in life to be a struggling black person or a struggling woman or a struggling queer person or a struggling fat person or a struggling person with glasses or with our or whatever. I was like, oh, that's not my calling. I'm also, in spite of and in, in the face of all those things, wired completely for pleasure, right? I'm like, my body is like this. It's not, I didn't create it in my head. I'm like, I'm supposed to get some pleasure. I'm like, literally, that feels good. Why? Because we're supposed to be feeling good, but we're supposed to be feeling good in relationship with each other. And a lot of times when I talk to people, one of the first things they have to break through is the idea that they deserve pleasure. Um, and especially for those of us who are like, but the world's on fire, right? That's the other thing we do is like, either we're oppressed and we're like, I don't even know that I deserve it, or I see that hot tub over there, but the world's on fire. Mm. Right? You know, you find yourself like, can I take any care of myself? And then what happens is I can take care of myself. Me, I, me, individually can go get care. I can get a massage. I can get whatever. But we don't think, what would it look like to abundantly, on a collective level, manifest everyone having access to pleasure? I want that, right? So collectivizing hot tubs is one of my life goals. And I'm starting a new organization called CollectiveHotTubs.com. Don't steal that. I'm probably going to truly do that. Um, So Audrey Lord is one of the key threats. She brings those kind of concepts to us. And I make the distinction between the erotic and pleasure. Like I use the term pleasure activism. I heard this term from a black organizer named Keith Kyler. Keith Kyler created something in New York initially called Housing Works that worked with people who were living with HIV and AIDS um, and did all these fundraising through thrift stores that are actually like banging thrift stores. Not, you know, you know, you know thrift store, right? Some thrift stores you walk in, you're like, oh, God, I guess we don't care about clothes, right? And some you walk into and you're like, amazed. You must have just gone through major changes, but this is in great shape, whatever. They do that second time where you're like, I love everything in here. And then all the resources would flow back to people who were living with HIV AIDS, right? And they were employed. It was like this really powerful, genius project. But my experience with Keith was on a dance floor. And Keith being like this long, like just arms everywhere, total freedom. And I was like, I didn't even know black people could move like that. Like, are we, is that cool? We can do that? <laughs> like, what if someone sees you? You know, you look free. <laughs> Be careful. Um, <laughs> But he was just a consistently very free black person. And one conversation we had, he used this term with me, pleasure activism, right? He was like, we need to be enjoying now, not waiting for some far off future. And we need to be enjoying now as a pleasure of the freedoms we've already gathered, right? So he passed away like a year after I had met him. And, but that stuck with me and stuck with me and stuck with me. And then I come across Audrey's work. I'm like, whoa, something's coming together here. Pleasure the definition that I'm using in, in this book is joy, contentment, and satisfaction. Joy, contentment, and satisfaction. The erotic takes a lot of those things and just brings in particularly in the realm of the sexual, particularly in that, in the realm of the erotic of the body, the eros. Um, but I'm just like, hey, I think we should all like understand what being satisfiable looks like. And I had a teacher tell me that once, are you satisfiable? And I was like... <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I really don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I could be satisfied. <laughs> so, and a lot of people, how many people right now are like, yeah, I know what it feels like to be totally satisfied. Got it. I like how the satisfied people are. <laughs> don't come steal it from me. No, it's like, <laughs> it's like, be proud. You're like, I figured it out. Raise your hands high. They're all tourists. They're what? <laughs> They're all tourists. You're like, it doesn't happen in Corvallis. There's no satisfaction here. Um, we're going to work on that together, y'all. Teamwork, okay? All the satisfied people here can probably give you some guidance. Um, but is this idea of being satisfiable in our lifetimes, which I think is very different from the idea of achieving justice in our lifetimes. And I, w- I really want to call that out. I'm like, I believe we're in a much longer journey towards justice. And I believe we cannot give up until we get there. And in this life, we have to be grabbing the joy and cultivating joy. And if you were here earlier, I talked about iteration, practice, right? What we practice is what we are. It literally is like what we are. So if we're practicing being punitive with each other, for instance, we become a punishing people, right? As we have become a punishing people. And even when we're trying to not be punitive, that's what we've been practicing. So that's what comes out under pressure. Yeah. So 
same thing. If we're practicing being unsatisfiable, never satisfied. And I think of this now in how many of you like organized spaces? Like you bring people together in spaces, you teach or something. So we pull together these spaces and people immediately show up and they're like, thanks so much for doing this, but here's how I'm totally not satisfied, <laughs> right? Because um, you didn't think about me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, we've been trained not to co-create and collaborate towards satisfaction. We've been trained to be consumers of dissatisfaction. Because we consume dissatisfaction. If we're consuming never-enoughness, then we're always going to need more. And herein is my great anti-capitalist greed. <laughs> but capitalism, it's not working. I'm tired of being unsatisfied. And trying to like, I spent enough money on this dissatisfaction, and it doesn't work. What I have realized, and what I say in the book many times, is you don't really need anything else to be satisfied. You don't need money to be satisfied. You don't need money to feel pleasure. You come into the world with a body that is completely wired and ready for it. But then trauma happens. And sometimes trauma has happened before that. Ancestral trauma comes in, then it happens with our lives. We get wrapped up in a little onion. You just need to be peeled, all right? You don't need money to do that peeling. You just need good conversations, good relationships, right? Good support. So a lot of the work I'm doing in this book, there's a lot of stuff called hot and heavy homework. Um, some of it's hot, some of it's heavy, some of it's both and, you know. And it's asking people to really do some deep dives. How do you feel about your nakedness? How do you feel about periods? How do you feel about these things that we need to be able to understand? How are you at articulating your needs? How are you at receiving, like, if someone wants to meet those needs? Because I know a lot of people who are like, you know, you go and talk to your girlfriends, you're like, here's what I need. I need a man who will, like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. <laughs> And then when you actually come face to face with like a living embodiment of man, then you're like, oh, what do you what do you want? Um, a relationship? No, not a relationship. Okay, cool. We can just have dinner sometime. No, just sex. Okay, cool. Um, and it's all about your your push. Okay, no, it's great. I love you're great. <laughs> I don't need love at all. I mean, like, I don't know this from personal experience. I've just heard rumors that that is. <laughs> what people call dating. And in the modern world, it's getting even more dire because of dating apps, which I'm like super excited about the potential dating apps, but I think we have a lot to learn from gay men around them. Because gay men are using dating apps really brilliantly. They're like, I would like to be had, this is how I would like you to have exact, just lick my left toe, third to the right, da 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 that's what I want. This is my kind of way of sex. And they just like very articulate the needs. I'm like blown away. And I look out, everyone else is using it, and I'm like, <laughs> Why won't we learn? <laughs> That's not how we're going to get it. They're like, I like dolphins. It's like, no. <laughs> Unless you're talking about dolphin sex, which Octavia does brilliantly, um, this is not that place for the dolphins. Like, you need to articulate. What is it you're looking for in life? What do you want? Someone to see dolphins with you? Like, be precise, right? So this idea of being satisfied starts with, like, do I know what I want? Do I know? Can I feel into myself? Um, earlier, there was a question about embodiment and emergent strategy, and it shows up a lot in this book, Embodiment and Pleasure, that I'm like, so many of us, our coping mechanisms are about numbing, 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 numbing. And when we're numb, we can resist almost any effort to move us, to please us, to change us, right? So right now, we are people who are trying to awaken a numbed America, Right? Our country is like, oh, and a lot of us as survival mechanisms for getting through this political one particularly are just like, I'm just going to get high and meditate for four yeah. years. <laughs> it's cool. No, it's fine. Um, I heard the news. That was horrible. Okay. <laughs> Stay down here. Right? And I know a lot of people are just like, I'm fine. It's good. I'm, I'm making it. It's cool. Um, several of those people started off by being like, did you hear what happened on the news? Did you hear what happened on the news every single day? And they're just like, it doesn't matter. It's all a shit show. Um, so when you're in a dumpster fire, you don't have to be like, it smells like trash, right? It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> so inside of that, <laughs> right, how do you then be like, oh, wait a second. I don't want to be numb. Numb actually keeps me endangered, right? Because when I'm numb, I can't tell that there's something at my back. I can't feel that I have people at my sides, both who have my sides and who need me to have theirs, right? I can't feel what's happening around me. So a huge invitation of the work of pleasure activism is 
Can you remember what it's like from the inside out to feel? And not to feel towards feeling good. So I am a teacher in the somatics lineage. Generative somatics is one of the places I call home for my teaching life. And somatics is the study of the soma, the study of the body and its wholeness. And a lot of it is relearning how to feel. Like, oh, what would it look like if we were a room full of people? We're like, I feel sad. That's okay. I can locate that sadness. I can care for that sadness. I can invite others to be with me in this sadness, right? It's basically the movie Inside Out, but for, like, grown-ups. <laughs> I love that movie. Actually, can I tell you all a really funny thing that happened the other day? I, I can. It's in the keynote. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was talking shit with someone about someone else. <laughs> and I was talking about the movie. I was like, they can't even feel their feelings which is, like, the highest insult I can now give because I can feel mine. So I'm like, <laughs> I can see that that person's not in touch with their feelings, um, which is better than the shade I used to throw, I think. I was like, they're dumb. I'm like, nope, they're not dumb. They just can't feel anything. I think that's what, I, you know, when I look at our current administration, I'm like, they're not dumb. They're not dumb, but they are, like, intentional about, like, fortification so that they don't feel anything, um, which is kind of what you have to do to barrel through all other humans' needs in order to accumulate wealth. Um, anti-capitalism, okay. So, but I was having this conversation with someone, I don't know, this may resonate here, we'll see. But have, you, have you all seen The Color Purple? Yes? So if you haven't, that's another, put it on your list, Color Purple, or if you have, just watch it again. But they were, we talked about the movie Inside Out, and for some reason I was like, well, what if the, it was like the color Inside Out? Like, instead of the color purple, you know, I was like, the color purple is a freedom struggle, it's a love story, it's about violence between people who love each other, there's a lot of powerful stuff in there. And I was like, but, but it's also about being with what we're actually feeling. And in that situation, it's like, as a black woman who has been told you're worth nothing your entire life and beaten your entire life, can you stand up to someone who's harming you, right? Do you still have the right to do that? And in order to say, yes, I do have the right to do that, you have to drop in and be like, this is anger. This is like a righteous anger that's not, like, no one socialized me to be angry as a protective device. This is like from inside. I'm pissed that this is how you're treating me when I trusted you with my love and my body, right? And so then I started doing the voices of Inside Out characters, but from the color purple, which I, I'm not going to do right now. It's just too much. It's just too good. I'm saving it for something else. No, I, I, it's also like it takes a lot to drop into Seely, but, um, but I just recommend you to in, imagine, right? It's like these things. Black people have emotions. <laughs> right? There's these simple, simple things that I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this. Like, even I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of watched Inside Out. Like, white family with their emotions. Right? Did you guys watch Inside Out? And, like, yeah. be like, huh. I'm like, oh, right. And everyone has those emotions. And part of what we're saying is everyone needs to be able to drop in and feel it and access them. And then from accessing them, we need to be able to act, communicate and act. So being able to be like, not only am I sad, but I want to be able to say that to you, like, in this moment. And I'm trying to break down the practice of lying to people as a way of social um, nicety or social, like, lubrication, right? Just like, how are you doing? I'm fine. Or I'm like, JK, totally tired, <laughs> heartbroken, or whatever it is that's actually happening, which you can feel. I think that a lot of times, like, if you're even slightly awake, you can usually feel when someone's like, I'm doing great. And you're like, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> like, I don't want to be rude, but like, you look like you're doing really bad. <laughs> um, or you feel, I feel that you're doing really badly. And I'm like, what does it look like? And, and I think the path to pleasure is actually about being able to name in real time, here's how I actually am. Here's what I actually need related to how I am. And then start to move from there. Yeah? So stop being liars. All right. <laughs> the other person I want to mention um, lineage-wise, is Tony K. Bambara. Tony K. Bambara wrote a book called The Salt Eaters that is, like, mind-blowing. Another thing for your reading list. Um, in which she asked this powerful question, are you ready, my dear, to be well? Which I think is one of the most radical questions you can ask yourself or another person. It's not, I, I now, I never meet people and assume that they are just, their baseline is well, right? I assume that, oh, this is someone who's walking with some kind of trauma somewhere, even if it's just that they're in America right now, right? But I'm like, this is someone who has experienced some kind of harm in their life. There's just someone who might be going through hardships right now. 
I can't necessarily see them all, right? So I'm used to being able to clock and develop empathy or have empathy for those that I'm like, visually I can tell that you probably suffer the same way I do. And one of the places I'm trying to really stretch my compassion is like, can I offer that to people who I can't tell visually what's happening for them? So how to just meet each other and be like, hey, how is your heart? How are you really? Yeah. Let me make some room for that. And not being a liar also. Like, don't ask that question if you don't have time for the answer, right? How's your heart? Ooh, you're good. Okay. There's a lot going on in your heart. Okay, well, I have to go. So you want to really be able to be, like, sitting down. But I think in real relationships, how do we build relationships that allow for the full range of our emotional capacity? So that question, are you ready to be well, is another one that we get to ask each other. Like, not only are you suffering, because I think a lot of times when we're with people who are suffering, our instinct is to be you know, yeah, fuck that life, or fuck that problem, or yeah, let's organize against that, instead of being, that is an unwellness, this is a dis-ease. Earlier we were in the room, we were talking about academia, and I'm like, academia is full of dis-ease, right? Toxic structures, toxic ways of communicating, toxic expectations about what a body can produce in a limited period of time. I always get blown away and very saddened by what I see happening in universities, because I think, oh, there's all these people that are so excited to learn something. And then we bring them here and just beat it out of them. Because we're like, yeah, you want to learn it? Well, the only way you can do it is if you pull all-nighters for 20 days in a row every three to four months. You down? You want to learn? Seven years if you want to really be an expert at it and get paid. Cool? Are you kidding? No, that's a horrible way to learn. Sorry, no offense. Uh, offense. I mean, like, stop doing that. <laughs> right? Can we change the entire university structure? But I do, I really want to change education in that way to be like, what would it look like if, if learning was a pleasurable experience and the entire thing was, how do I build a, a connection between you and that thing that you're interested in that is so pleasurable and undeniable that you will stick with it forever, that you'll just be like, oh, I love teaching, right? Or I love painting, or I love ceramics, or I love philosophy. And no one beat it out of me, but that love was encouraged and met and made a pleasurable, delightful experience of just reveling in knowledge or reveling in research or whatever it is, right? So she also says this role that I think is very important, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. This to me feels like pleasure activism work, like core pleasure activism work. I ask it in a slightly different way. What would it look like if pleasure was the common experience we had when we were doing justice and liberation work, right? Just like academia makes for, like, miserable, you know, classrooms with no windows or whatever's happening, um, I think in organizing work we do the same thing, right? We're just like, okay, the world is a complete mess. Holy shit, we're dying, right? Climate change, fires, walls. We're all really tired, and none of us eat, but we would like to recruit you <laughs> to come join us. Um, one of the first things we want to tell you is you don't know anything about anything, and every time you try to say anything, we're going to tell you how fucked up you are. <laughs> but we really want you here, because we don't have any other people. Um, are you kidding me, right? We're like, why don't we have the numbers? Like, you know, I'm like, it doesn't, it's not good, not fun, right? So in the places that people do love coming back to over and over again are places where it's like, hi, I noticed that you are a human body. So here is some food. Here is some water. Um, children have a place to be right here with us because children make everything awesome. Their orientation is towards fun. So when in doubt, turn to a four-year-old and just be like, what should we do right now? Right? And they're going to come up with a much better idea than whatever you were planning. Right? I don't know. Like, have fun. <laughs> right? Basically, some variation on that. Um, and that works basically up until about nine. <laughs> and then around ten, they're like, ooh, play video games. Um, which is also fun, but different way. But I do think there's this idea of how do we build movement structures, organizing structures that actually feel good to be in. How do we learn to communicate so that it feels good to be with each other? And then how do we make that so compelling that other people, we're not going out and like trying to knock on their door, like, can I interest you in surviving in the future? <laughs> right? It's just sort of like, oh, we're over here just like having the best party, but if you want to come, you know, fight for justice with us, like, cool, right? It's a different invitation. And I'm definitely going to the twerking justice party, <laughs> right, over the people who like door knock during my dinner. Like, you know, you're always coming. Don't you know what dinner is? You know, like, it's just like, no, right? 
They don't eat dinner because they're organizers. We don't eat. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about black liberation specifically because, you know, we need some up in here in Corvallis, <laughs> right? Um, and one of the things people often ask me is, as non-black people, as white folks, like, how can I... Mm, and I think that mm, it's kind of like, how do I do right? How do I do this right? How do I show up well? How do I re- help rebalance all this stuff from my positionality? And I love the question because I'm like, yeah, I don't know. We have, since we have not done this, <laughs> we don't fully know. But I do have some ideas. One is because currently most of our organizing of our society is around how we suffer, how we have common struggle. So even for black folks, we're like, you know, I'm like, hey, black people over there, okay, I see you and I just want you to know we went through slavery, right? It was like whatever it is, it's like, okay? Like, and, and so for me, a big part of what I've been trying to change is like, hey, black people, if you look past all that, back before all that, there was some original space in which we were pleasure bodies. And we have a gorgeous, ancient, amazing lineage, and we know how to access pleasure. But we may have forgotten. But we need to remember, right? So if we self-organize that way, then I think for folks who are non-black, is then they would have some permission, y'all would have some permission, to organize not around how do I protect you from further harm, because everything is harm, but instead, how do I create more space and how do I redistribute more so that you can have all the access to pleasure that you should have in your life, right? And to me, it, it's like a small shift and it's a really radical big shift um, because, you know, so much of how oppression works is you don't think of oppressed people experiencing joy. So think about this, like we think of the service people, right? I think often like you go into a place and you're getting a meal, there's service people coming and taking care of you. And how rarely I see people just look up and be like, hi, human, how are you doing? What are your dreams? Probably not just serving me this soup. What, what do you dream, right? In the same way, we can begin to not see the full potential, the full lives, the full dreams, and the full pleasure potential of people who are more oppressed than us in whatever ways it is. So one of the first steps is, is literally just to imagine, oh, what would it look like if that person was totally, totally free? I have several people now who have reached out to me to be pleasure allies to my life, right? They're like, I see you traveling a lot. I would like to support you by buying you a massage when you land. Like, I just was in Seattle. I came, I just got back from Thailand. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, and so I was, like, super jet-lagged in Seattle. Was that five? How many times did I say it? So about six. Set in Thailand. Um, so, and someone reached out and was like, I'm going to cover for you to go to, like, sit in a bath sit in a bathhouse and, like, just get a massage, right? And it's something I wouldn't think of for myself. And then if I did think of it, I would be like, I can't afford to do that, right? I can't prioritize that. There's people who want to meet with me and talk about political things. And instead, having someone reach out who's a white ally, who's, like, intentionally a white ally, white accomplice, you know, and is like, hey, I see that you might be tired. I can imagine you might be tired. I'm not going to be like, are you so tired? That must be so hard, right? Then we just focus on tired. Let's pick up our attention and move it to rest, balm, relaxation. I think about this a lot, but I'm like, if you are a white person, if you are a man, if you are a person with ability, how do you start to think about increasing the pleasure of folks who don't have access to that privilege? And I think of it systemically, right? So the example I gave was an individual one, and I'm like, that's great. How would we systematize that? I think about this a lot, right? Is that often when it comes to starting to do work around racial justice, the place we start off is, okay, let's get together and kind of shame each other into right behavior, right? And we might do that through caucusing work, right? One of my favorite things is like when white folks are just with each other and like, I'm the wokest white person here. No, I'm the wokest white person. No, I'm actually the wokest white person here. We don't even use that language anymore. <laughs> right? We all do this in our own... I just want to say everyone's doing this in their own caucuses, but just so you know, it's happening everywhere. Um, but I'm like, oh, what is the usefulness of that? Right? And then it's, there's often then, how do we find a black person who's willing to take time to educate us or a person of some other background who's willing to educate us? And I find, like, what's happened with this person I was speaking of, that... 
because her first way of interacting with me was just like, I see you. I don't need anything. I just want to offer something. And you don't have to give me anything in return. Like, it's just yours. And she continued to do that. And so I was like, I'm interested in you. <laughs> like, you're a white person I really want to talk to. You're not coming to extract anything additionally from me. You're just seeing me and being like, let me restore. Let me give back. Right? Now we're starting to build a really authentic relationship. Because I'm like, oh, I'm curious. How did you become the kind of white person who evolved beyond that extractive um, inheritance? Right? Because I don't think, you know, it's like, I got a white mom. Um, and I have a whole thus white side of my family. And I look at each of those individuals, and I'm like, none of these individuals are like, I was born, and as soon as I came out of the womb, I was just like, mm, racism. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, most white folks are like, I don't even know that that was a thing. And so, like, much later, I just wasn't seeing all of that. And so, so much of it is like, oh, I want you to see. I want you to see me. I want you to see that lineages of time have impacted me. I want you to see and want to shift that. And then I'm like, oh. If you see me, then I can see you, right? But if you can't see me, there's this invisible wall there that makes it really hard for me to even care to really look, right? And I see this happening now, fissuring our movements so deeply, is that moments happen like the Women's March. And it was like those white girls and their pink pussy hats. And then the white women are like, what? <laughs> this is awesome. We're like taking charge. Like, don't we all, don't all women want to do this thing? And it's like, oh, you're not seeing, right? Like, oh, we're not seeing each other both ways, right? But yesterday in Seattle, there was a, we did a rapid fire Q&A towards the end, and which meant people, they, people had written all these questions on cards, passed them forward, and they were like giving to me, like, boom, boom, boom. So one of them was like, what should white women do? You know, what should white women do? And I was like, rap, you know, I was like, mm, quiet listening. <laughs> and that's what just came from my heart, which is down here. That came from my heart. <laughs> so I didn't take uh, anatomy. Um, but it was so deep to see that, oh, that's really what I believe. Is like, what does it actually mean to stop needing to say so much or prove so much with words? And instead to really be like, you know, if I'm a white person or a person of privilege in relationship with someone who has less privilege, I make sure that our, our conversations are 70-30 that person is giving 70% of the content. I'm listening more than I'm talking, right? It's like a simple attention practice. I give this to men all the time. I'm like, 90-10. <laughs> Just listen so much more, right? It's extreme, but it helps because it's the, the tilt the other way has been so extreme. And I, it makes me, it breaks my heart, actually, whenever I see folks who are like, I'm a well-intentioned white person who even in my good intentions right now, as I'm telling you my good intentions, I haven't even asked you how you are, <laughs> right? Or if you have time to hear all that I'm giving you. And to be like, oh, I feel all the goodness of that, and I'm so spooned out, or whatever's happening, right? And I'm like, oh, how often is that happening? Just these tiny micro-fissures that keep us from then being able to be together, and being together is what's necessary to actually feel pleasure together, and actually feel free together, right? Well, why don't we do one more thing? I want to play this audio for you of my friend because um, she's amazed. So, and I'll tell you a little bit more about her. It was just her birthday on April 17th, two days ago, and she would have been 43. And so the love story, the back story, is this organizer named Malkia Cyril, who, uh, Malkia, who's shouting Malkia? Yay, Malkia, yay, hi, love. Ah. Um, so Makia is basically the reason we're going to have access to the internet in any future, right? Um, organizes the Center for Media Justice, incredible human being. And Makia and Alana went to college together. They didn't like each other much. 20 years later, they come across each other. They thought each other was snobby. And then 20 years later, they come across each other's path through a friend and realize we're totally, completely in love with each other. Like it was one of those things where it's like first date and they're already like selfies, like to everybody, right? And I was like, okay. And we all watched, those of us, I didn't know Alana first, I knew Malkia first, so we all watched them tumble, fall head over heels into love. I mean, epic love story. Three years of dating love story, they get engaged love story, they get married, and um, right after the first anniversary, Alana's feeling this pain in her stomach, goes in and finds out she has metastatic gastroesophageal cancer, which is the kind that you can't 
um, change. You can't come back from. But that's what they tell us so far, right? And I really, really hate cancer. And um, I don't hate very many things. But Octavia has this idea in one of her books, Lilith's Brood, that cancer, that another alien species is able to understand cancer as a genius growth um, capacity that humans alone in all the universe have developed, but we don't know how to harness. And it helps me sometimes to try and dance with it a little bit, but mostly I'm like, fuck it. Um, but so she gets this cancer, and it's like, wait, we're in an epic love story. We're supposed to be, like, together forever. This cannot be what's happening that we were just told we might at most have five years. That's not what's happening. So they organized a massive community of people together, and we were an online and offline community that was, like, loving and supporting and following every step of the process. Um, I, like, got colostrum from a friend who had just given birth and, like, figured out how to send it across the country because I was like maybe magical breast milk stuff will save you You like we were all you know it's like I mean all of you know this I think everyone in this room has probably been touched by cancer because it's that's what our time is I think when we look back at this era if we survive this will be the era of cancer like it'll be that's what was the biggest thing that was actually happening under the under the folds but so we're all trying to help heal and slowly she's I mean she battled so hard this woman she got, she had brain surgery where they had to like do open brain. I don't know how to do it, but it was like basically she had to be awake while they were operating on her brain. Okay. And she was just like a boss. She was a comedian. She was fucking hilarious and beloved. So they loved each other so much that even though they had done a wedding, they did this recommitment ceremony. And it was like, we want to just have the community come together one more time while she's still here rather than waiting till after she's gone to be together. And I got to go be there. And afterwards, she was super open. I was like, I had interviewed her. She's in the book talking about pleasure after cancer. And so I was like, most of the events I'm going to do will be with whoever the most, you know, closest local contributor is. I would love for you to be on this tour with me, but that's not going to happen. So I'd like to bring you on the tour in this way. And she was like, oh, my God. Yes. So... Here she is at her, on her second wedding day, talking about love, pleasure. This is Adrienne, I'm here with Alana, and we're going to have a little conversation about pleasure. So, Alana, tell me a little bit about what this day has been. Today, um, I renewed my vows with my spouse, my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, who I've been married to for about three years. And um, every morning I just get to wake up next to Mac. Um, and it's the best thing every single morning. Um, some people might think you have to get further into the day, but no. All, all you gotta do is just wake up and open your eyes and look right there. Um, and then just be reminded and have just all of the blessings. What is something that you wish more people understood about pleasure? I think for me, it's that you have to create it in some way. That it's not a passive. I mean, it can be passive, but it's better if it's not. If you can like engage in the play of finding pleasure then you are really making magic happen. So it's not like, oh, I jumped rope and that's whatever it is. It's like, what is exciting about jumping rope and finding that? And it's like, maybe it's how long, like how, like how many sequential jumps can I get? And that's the, the delay. Or maybe it's like, I don't know, you throw a thing and I don't know, it's just, to me it's about actually just getting your fingers, like getting your hands in the dirt. I love that, like grasping life, grasping the pleasure of life. Um, in the book, which people who hear this audio will be at a book event, and in the book you talk about pleasure after receiving a cancer diagnosis. And can you tell those who are listening a little bit about your decision to continue to pursue pleasure and to use pleasure as a medicine a bit? I felt, so when I received my diagnosis, 
it was a um, it was a big diagnosis. Like it was not like a little sort of this is going to pass diagnosis. It was a, a metastatic. It, you know, it's not going to cure sort of cancer. Um, so I had a choice, right? Like I can let this ruin my life, or I can find ways to resist it. Like find ways to resist what culture wants me to do. Um, and that's what I chose. Like I've chosen that every morning I'm going to remember love. Every morning I'm going to find some way to laugh. Like I'm. I do comedy for several years. Like, I I find everything funny. Like, if there's a, like, that is one of my skills. It's just, like, finding the ridiculousness of things. And so that's what I've chosen to do. Like, I don't want to be mired in, I don't want to be mired in more suffering than I need to be. So having cancer is hard, and I'm just going to let that be hard. And then I'm going to also eat ice cream when I want to. And I'm also going to, like, listen to every song that I love. And why not? You know? And I want that for everybody. I want everybody to listen to their favorite song every day. There's something you said today, and you were like, I really wish this love that I have for everybody. And did you say you wish this fear? You wish this fear? I don't know. I mean, I think I said I wish this fear. Yeah. Like, I wish that people can be kind of terrified into deciding that pleasure is important, that that they need to roll up their sleeves. That feels like you don't just get that by accident. You get, like, jostled into it. Um, I wish the easiest way for people to get jostled into it and then to tumble around and, yeah. I love that. I love you. And I know people are going to see the film. That's exciting. Is there anything else that you would want to tell people? Like, if you were in the audience, because you would be having this conversation, if there's anything else you want to share? I would say, um, drink in, just drink in beauty. Like, as you walk down the street, it's so, it's like, I don't want to be the one that's like, oh, stop and smell the roses, because I don't really believe that. What I really do believe is, like, it's really funny when a sign is spelled wrong. I laugh at that, you know? Like, find the thing that is true, like, authentic to you, and go with that. Thank you. Yeah. Yay. So, actually, since we are in the Alana mechanism. I'd love for us all to shout happy birthday, Alana. Um, and I'll send that to Alana's partner, Mac, who loves gathering like people all yelling things to Alana. <laughs> so I'm going to start over here. We're going to all yell at this time. Go. Happy This film is called My Life Interrupted, so another thing she decided to do with cancer was make a film about her life and what was happening. So it's coming around to different festivals, but it might be something y'all could bring to the school. Bye. 